Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks again for joining us. I've got a really exciting and important announcement to make, and that is that my beautiful, wonderful wife, Carly, is pregnant with a baby boy. We're hoping to bring this kid to term in February, and with any luck, we'll have a healthy kid. I know a lot of other people are pregnant right now. I am fully gearing up for the COVID baby boom that is to come. And so I know a lot of people are thinking about pregnancy and interested in obstetrical stuff right now. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about an important thing regarding pregnancy, and that is the bacterial infection listeria. And now listeria affects a lot more people than just pregnant women, but I really kind of got into this mostly for the pregnancy thing, and so I'm going to be discussing a lot of those important ideas. Let's get right into the basics of listeria. Now, this genus of bacteria is a gram-positive bacilli. So it's it's your kind of rod shape, which is kind of unusual in our medically important bacteria for a gram-positive organism. When I think about gram-positive rods, I think about two classes, and those are or genuses, and those are Clostridium and Listeria. Listeria is a facultative anaerobic bacteria, so it can survive both with oxygen and without oxygen. It is mostly intracellular when infecting humans, and because of that, it kind of hijacks itself into macrophages and monocytes. It's believed that this is one way that it helps invade the gut in the first place, but then also invade both the central nervous system, causing things like meningitis, but also the placenta. It's one of those torch organisms that can cross the placenta and infect baby and cause horrible problems like fetal demise and sepsis immediately following birth. Now, when the bacteria Listeria causes an infection, we call that Listeriosis. Most cases of Listeriosis in humans are caused by Listeria monocytogenes. However, there's also other Listeria that can cause infection, but they're quite a bit more rare than monocytogenes. The first thing to know about Listeria is that it's essentially everywhere. It's in dirt, it's in water, it's on plant vegetation, and it also lives inside the guts of many mammals. In fact, in some studies that I was looking at, up to 10% of humans will be colonized with Listeria. So it's kind of always around and always with us. Now, most of the infections that people get are when the Listeria actually invades through the gut. And, and actually, to have Listeriosis, you kind of have to have that. Because if you just have kind of a GI upset from Listeria, that's basically just a, a gastroenteritis. And because of the colonization of Listeria, it's hard to really pin that down as a, a Listeria disease. So we kind of reserve that Listeriosis to when the bacteria actually invades the body and it causes a very uh, often severe infection, Listeriosis. I'm going to be very honest in that I have never actually taken care of a patient with listeriosis. 
What I have done is thought about listeria on many occasions though. And the places where this bacteria seem to come up are one, meningitis. Remember that our newborns that have meningitis are going to get ampicillin and gentamicin. Listeria is actually the third leading cause of meningitis in newborn babies, and so that's something and a place where I always think about them. On the other end of the spectrum, I think about elderly people. And how I kind of uh, bring that up is when people hit age 50 and have bacterial meningitis we cover them with uh, if they're healthy we cover them with vancomycin a third generation cephalosporin like ceftriaxone and then when they're over 50 we add on ampicillin because of that risk for listeria the other group that i often think about listeria are the immunocompromised and people with uh, diseases like HIV have a much higher risk of getting invasive listeriosis. The final group, and, and to me the most important group where I think about listeria, are pregnant women. Now pregnant women have somewhere between a 10 to 20 fold increase in listeriosis over the general population. They tend to get more mild infections than, than newborns and older folks and immunocompromised folks. But since it can cross the placenta, it often causes devastating consequences for baby. And that's why we think about pregnancy so much with regard to this bacteria. And that's why we have so many dietary modifications. I would say that about half of the diet things that come up in pregnancy are, all, are mostly related to listeria. And so we're going to talk about here and dive into why those are and what they actually mean. Do I really need to stop eating soft cheese? To answer that question, we need to look at the epidemiology of listeria. Now, when you get on the CDC website, if you type it into Google, it comes up with 1,600 cases of listeriosis every year in the United States. And I saw that 1,600 number reproduced all over the internet on all these different sources and so it's just funny how kind of a number like that gets out and then everyone just sort of spits it out and it, it becomes a thing of where did that actually come from and is that actually true so I did a little bit of digging and I found something called FoodNet which is a CDC program where they do surveillance of foodborne illnesses Basically, they track seven bacterial pathogens, Campylobacter, Listeria, Salmonella, Shigatoxin-producing E. coli, Shigella, Vibrio, and Yersinia. They also track two parasitic infections, Cyclospora and Cryptosporidium, as well as hemolytic uremic syndrome. It's kind of a snapshot of the population. In the 2015 data, they surveyed 49 million people across uh, about eight different states. Keep in mind that the population of the United States in that year was about 321 million. So this snapshot represented about 15.2% of the population. In 2015, in that population of 15% of the United States, there were 116 cases of listeriosis. Of those cases, 15 died that gives a mortality rate of 12.93 percent 
and that is the highest of any foodborne illness in the United States. So this is a very rare disease, but it has a very high mortality. The two other bacterial infectious pathogens with the highest number of deaths were Campylobacter. That had about over 6,000 cases and 13 deaths, and then Salmonella, which had almost 8,000 cases and 32 deaths. So by the numbers, if you do get Listeria, your chances of dying are going to be quite a bit higher than those other infections. Now, if we extrapolate the number of cases of Listeria in that 15% of the population to the entire United States, the number I get is about 763 cases in the United States in the year 2000. 2015. So that's quite a bit less than 1,600. In fact, uh, just under half. And so I think these numbers are changing, and I think we need to be, um, you know, kind of happy that it seems like the cases are downtrending. And in fact, they somewhat are. Uh, the FoodNet also reports that uh, cases are down 45% from the 1996-1998 period down 12% from the 2006-2008 period, and down 5% from the 2012-2014 period. So that may mean a good thing. Now, looking at the data worldwide, it was hard for me to find clear answers. It does seem evident that there are more cases of listeria in Europe. One of the reasons cited were because many European cultures not unlike myself, love cheese very, very much, and so a lot of soft cheese being eaten, but I'm not sure exactly the reason. From a whole worldwide statement uh, standpoint, the World Health Organization quotes 0.1 to 10 cases per million per year. I don't know what that exactly means or how accurate that is, but that was sort of the easiest quick answer I could find for worldwide number of cases. Back to the United States, it's believed that just under 30% of cases are in pregnant women. So w women that are pregnant are, are seeing a high burden of this disease. Listeria cases can occur sporadically, but they can also occur in clusters from infected food sources. One of the more recent ones was in 2011 when a batch of cantaloupe was found to be infected from Colorado. These typically result in, in large-scale recalls and, and things like that. One of the earliest, or perhaps the earliest, outbreak of listeriosis in the United States was actually in 1985 and was associated with Latin-style uh, cheese, queso fresco, and cotilla. Uh, these are two of my favorites. Uh, this resulted in 142 illnesses, 28 deaths, 20 fetal losses. So, really bad deal. And even today, most of the cheese-related listeriosis infections are directly attributable to uh, Latin-style cheeses, queso fresco, and cotijo, and other cheeses like that. Basically, to sum up the epidemiology, this is an extremely rare but very fatal infection. This is a bacteria that is present kind of ubiquitously throughout the world in soil and water and in the guts of animals. It tends to occur in outbreaks that are related to food but can also occur sporadically. Pregnant women, newborn babies, older individuals, and those who are immunocompromised are at the greatest risk for infection. With that information in mind, let's get into the clinical presentation of listeriosis. This can be somewhat variable, 
but oftentimes these people are presenting sick with a flu-like illness. This will often start with GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, upset stomach, and then move on to things like fevers, chills, muscle aches, and body aches. Like we've been saying, this bacteria has a predilection to invade the central nervous system and as a result of that can cause meningitis, which of course is classically associated with headache, neck stiffness, and fever. Because it can cross the placenta, it's considered one of those torch organisms and can cause a number of problems in the newborn. This includes things like growth restriction, mental disabilities later in life, as well as uh, loss of pregnancy, fetal demise, stillbirth, and other problems. If baby does survive the pregnancy, they can often become uh, septic immediately following birth, and this can be a big, big problem. Kids can typically develop a uh, sepsis syndrome called granulomatous infantiseptica. They get these horrible granulomas all over their body, and it's a really, really bad deal. Pregnant women, unlike most individuals with listeriosis, tend to get a more mild illness. They still will present with like a flu-like illness, but typically will survive and do well. It's their fetus, uh, their, their unborn baby, that generally bears the, the brunt of the issue. Alright, diagnosis of listeria. Like we said earlier, this is a bacteria that can colonize people's guts. So you can't just get a stool sample or a vomit sample and, and find the bacteria in there and call it listeriosis. What you need is a sterile body source that you can then culture listeria out of. So this is going to be something like a blood culture, cerebral spinal fluid culture, uh, placental tissue culture, or something like that in order to get your good diagnosis. Okay, if you are suspecting listeriosis, before you even get your culture results back, you're going to want to get treatment started. This is a bacteria, and the go-to, of course, are our favorite antibiotics. Historically, and even now, the two go-tos are ampicillin and penicillin. Because this is such a rare infection, I think for... Uh, years to come we're probably going to go with those things which we know work and work well just hitting on some doses for adults if you're using ampicillin you're going to use two grams IV every four hours so pretty high pretty high doses if you're used to using that that medication for penicillin G in adults you're going to use four million units IV every four hours for mirapenem you're going to use two grams every eight hours and those are all things which have been shown to work. In infants and children, you're going to use a weight-based dosing strategy. And you're just going to look it up because those strategies are not well written anyway. And it's just helpful to look them up every time I need to use them. One example is for an infant less than 7 days old who may have CNS infection. You're going to use 200 to 300 milligrams per kilogram per day divided into three doses. I don't know why you wouldn't just say 100 milligrams per kilogram uh, three times a day. But anyway, that's pediatric dosing and medications. You gotta keep it complicated, right? All right, now that we've gotten the less important stuff out of the way, things like diagnosis and treatment, it's time to talk about the real important deal, and that is prevention. How do we not get listeriosis? 
as we know, this is a very fatal infection. When people get it, they have a high chance of dying. In the United States in 2015, the people who got this uh, disease had a 12.9% chance of dying. So that makes prevention just so important. And when we think about the, the neonates and the crossing of the placenta, it becomes an even more and more important factor. And the first thing, long before Listeria ever hits me in the clinic, is kind of our food surveillance system and regulations through things like the FDA. People need really clean, really good food production uh, mechanisms. If there's breaches in these food production systems, you get things like contamination, and that's how you have outbreaks of listeria. And actually, when we look at outbreaks in listeria, we almost often find gross negligence on the part of the manufacturer. In one study I'm going to talk about soon, uh, of soft cheeses, they found that all of the infected outbreaks were associated with poor manufacturing situations, things like roofs stripping into um, production areas, sewer vents uh, going out into production areas, workers that were hanging their um, garbs in bathroom areas, uh, pest infections like cockroaches and rats and other things like that. And so there's a reason why these outbreaks occur. If we use great infection control processes in our food production, these things don't happen. So that's kind of the first step. I'm not going to talk more about that, but really long before these people hit the clinic is the important time in preventing these infections from happening. But listeria doesn't stop with food production and facilities and big manufacturing sites, it carries into the home. One thing about listeria that makes it tough to deal with is the fact that it grows well at cold temperatures. If your fridge is not kept cold enough, meaning less than 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees Celsius, this bacteria can actually continue to grow and even thrive in your refrigerator. And so I'm going to go over some tips from the CDC about just how general people can can avoid listeria infection. And the first one is to keep that refrigerator cold. Like I said, less than 40 degrees Fahrenheit or uh, less than 4 degrees Celsius. And then turn that freezer down as well, less than 0 degrees. And that'll prevent listeria from just growing on your foods in the refrigerator. Always so important in infection control is hand washing. Oh my gosh, it just keeps coming up. We've got to do it, and you got to do it right. At least 20 seconds, soap and running water and actually scrub. Get the, get the junk off your hands. The next thing is to keep raw meat away from fresh fr produce and other ready-to-eat foods so that you don't contaminate them. You're going to want to thaw foods in the and also marinate foods in the refrigerator. Uh, obviously, if they're sitting at a room temperature, you're going to have a more likely chance of overgrowth of listeria. You're going to want to wash all your fruits and vegetables really well. Make sure you're not cutting them on a cutting board that you just cut meat or poultry. Keep those things separate just like you did in the fridge. You can use a food thermometer to make sure that you've adequately cooked cooked meat in it that it's uh, got good temperatures. If, if you don't heat it up nice and hot, the listeria aren't going to die. But in, in general, if you cook, cook the food well, you're, you're not going to have issues with listeria. You're going to want to make sure that you're 
refrigerating your leftovers quickly. Don't leave them out overnight and put them in the fridge or don't leave them out for several hours. The CDC says less than two hours and they should be covered and in the fridge. And then you're going to want to throw leftovers out after a period of three to four days. Uh, as far as listeria goes, you want to avoid eating those leftovers that are, say, a week old. And then also just throwing out old food. So important. You don't want your fridge to be colonized with this bug. So keep keep things clean and keep things tidy and, and you'll probably do pretty well. I should have also mentioned before that food tracing can be really difficult with listeria because while you know a lot of people are going to be developing infection within a few days to a week, there are some people that can develop symptoms up to 90 days after eating contaminated food. So it can be really tough to trace back and see where the food problem came from. Now, in our pregnant women, we are telling them to avoid certain foods because of the high risk of listeria. And, and when I say high risk, I should say very small overall risk of listeria. But we are generally telling our women to avoid processed and delicatessen meats like deli meat, hot dogs, soft cheeses like queso fresco, brie, smoked seafood, meat spreads like uh, pate, and anything else really that you would put in the fridge and then pull out and just sort of eat right away. All those foods are going to be kind of in your danger zone. Now, that being said, if any of these foods are thoroughly cooked, they're going to be okay. If you heat up a hot dog really well and it's hot, it is going to be okay to eat. Now, the reality is, as said before, if all of these foods were processed and created in safe, uh, clean environments, we wouldn't see listeria outbreaks. If you knew who was making your soft cheese and they were pasteurizing it and then meticulously packaging it and had no compromising, there wouldn't be an issue with this. Unfortunately, we see breakdowns in our food processing where sanitation sort of goes by the wayside and that leads to these listeria outbreaks and that's why we can't necessarily trust these foods, particularly for our pregnant women. Now, while infection can be particularly devastating in our pregnant women, particularly for the unborn child, the risk of actually getting infection are extraordinarily low. And I want to spend the final part of this podcast talking about a really cool paper that I found called Listeriosis Outbreaks Associated with Soft Cheeses in the United States Between 1998 and 2014. This is a paper that was published by the CDC journal Emerging Infectious Diseases. My wife actually found a way for us to get this journal for free a couple years ago, and we've still been getting it. It's got some really obscure articles, but I've got to say, for this particular topic, this was the best source of information. Way better than ACOG, way better than, honestly, the counseling that uh, I've received and heard from providers. It really shed some light on this. So I want to talk about some of the important parts of this paper and how it's sort of changed how I think about things. Between 1998 and 2014, there were 58 listeriosis outbreaks reported in the United States, and 17 or 30 percent of these were associated with soft cheeses. This resulted in 180 illnesses, 14 fetal losses, 17 deaths. So 
you know, kind of small pockets of pretty serious burden of disease. And those numbers were just for the 17 outbreaks related to soft cheeses. But here is the real kicker, and that is that 13 of those 17 outbreaks were associated with pasteurized cheese products. So these were pasteurized soft cheeses that were causing the majority of these outbreaks. I think this is a kind of a breaking point because I have heard so many people say, oh, you're, you're okay to eat soft cheeses if they've been pasteurized. And from this information and in, in the outbreaks that we've had recently, that simply isn't true. If you're trying to avoid listeria, you need to avoid all these soft cheeses. What people need to know is that even if something is pasteurized, if there's a breach in the processing after the pasteurization, infection can be reintroduced and it can be just the same as an unpasteurized product. And so pasteurization only matters if it's then packaged uh, and stored properly. The next big kicker is that two-thirds of these soft cheese outbreaks and over half of the infections were linked to Latin-style cheeses, and namely queso fresco. And Latino women are disproportionately affected in pregnancy by listeriosis. They're like 30 times over the regular population with regard to this, and that's probably related to these Latin-style cheeses. So really, if you just cut out things like queso fresco, uh, cotillo, and other Latin-style cheeses, you're going to get rid of uh, the, the vast majority, or at least the majority, of listeriosis cases. Now, other soft cheeses have also been implicated. Uh, sheep's milk cheese, Middle Eastern or Eastern European-style cheeses, Middle Eastern-style cheeses, Italian-style cheese, blue vein cheese, and soft-ripened cheese each accounted for one outbreak. So all of the soft cheeses can cause these types of problems, but Latino-style cheeses tend to have the biggest burden of disease, and as a result, Hispanic women seem to be disproportionately affected by this problem. Like we've said, women who get this infection and are pregnant can have dismal outcomes for their fetus. One thing that's been really hard is I don't know exactly what the rate of, say, fetal demise is from listeriosis infection. I don't know what the rate of neonatal septis, sepsis is from maternal infection. So some of these numbers are kind of convoluted in a way. But I wanted to somehow give you an overall assessment of, of the risk. And one thing I always tend to fall back on are traffic accidents. And in the United States, there's about 38,000 traffic accidents in the United States every year. Breaking down some more numbers, there's about 6 million pregnant women in the United States every year. So 6 million of our pregnant, 6 million of our women are getting pregnant, and that represents about 1.8% of the population. When you kind of crunch those numbers, it means that, assuming that, that there's a perfect correlation between total population, pregnant women, and they have equal percentages in traffic deaths, that means that about 684 pregnant women are going to die in auto accidents every year. When I broke that down by the population, that means that there's about 11.4 per 100,000 deaths in pregnant women in automobile accidents. Now, when we look at 
listeriosis in pregnant women, it looks like according to the rates from 2015, which are going to be lower than a lot of the other sources reported, there's only about 3.8 infections, listeriosis infections, per 100,000 pregnant women. So, what this is really saying is that a pregnant woman is three times more likely to die in an automobile accident than they are to become infected with listeria. And like I said before, we don't even know how many of the women that are infected actually lose their pregnancy or actually have a, a septus issue with their newborn. So it's not totally clear just how devastating the cases of listeriosis actually are in pregnancy. In life, we accept risk every day. We take risks going outside our house, going to our job, driving, breathing, eating, and really all this comes down to risk tolerance. Most pregnant women are going to drive. They're not going to stay in a house for the entire nine months and never drive around. That's just not practical. That's not something they're going to do. By the same token, it probably is a lot easier for most people to say, I'm going to not eat soft cheeses throughout my pregnancy. As far as me and my wife are concerned, we're doing just that. And, and my wife loves cheese. And I'll say that she's, she's messed up a few times already just because we didn't really know the numbers and, and, and how important this was. And we're told things about pasteurized cheese being okay. And after kind of doing a deep dive in this, I... I I don't think they are. So from from our standpoint, we're we're gonna avoid the cheese, or, or rather, she's gonna avoid the cheese. But that's kind of our shared decision on the matter. I would love to hear what you think about this. I would love to hear what your decision is. In general, the risk is extremely low, so I would never fault anybody that was aware of all this information and said, you know what, the risk is just too tiny. I love cheese. And so I'm just going to eat soft cheeses occasionally from good sources and, and live my life. And I think that would be a fine decision. Going back to the CDC's FoodNet, the surveillance system that I talked about earlier, where they look at foodborne illness infections in the United States, one thing that really made me sad about that data is that they didn't have a little box for pregnancy. They had a lot of... of of demographic markers, things like age and sex, but unfortunately they didn't mention pregnancy in that, and I think that was a huge miss, and I would love to see this information added in future years. Also, please remember regarding the FoodNet data that these were the cases which were diagnosed with a, a culture and then reported by a lab. There's probably going to be a lot more cases that are not reported. It's probably going to bias towards those more severe cases and those cases which ended up with uh, fatalities. And so it, whenever you're taking data like this, it's hard to know exactly how many cases actually exist. And you just kind of do the best you can and use the information you have. I also forgot to mention that the antibiotics trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, also known as cotrimazole, and vancomycin have been used in the past to successfully treat listeriosis. And that is listeriosis. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. A lot of information here. Unfortunately, a lot of holes as well. I did the best I could with the brain I have and the information I could find. I'd love to hear what you think. I'd love to hear if you are eating or not eating soft cheese during pregnancy. To all you pregnant women out there, 
Hang in there. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep taking great care of your body for your future child. That is just so awesome, and we are thinking about you. Uh, my wife and me, by proxy, are right there with you. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.